0: prayer heavenly father we thank you for the gift of a relationship with you made possible through your son Jesus Christ we thank you we thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us through your word both your written word and your incarnate word your son god we ask that you would be with us today that your holy spirit would work in us as we read your word that your spirit would bring to our hearts what is fruitful and helpful we pray this in jesus name amen Um, acts chapter 12. i'm really excited uh to be preaching this passage uh, today in fact i was so excited about it that many, many, many months ago, um, when we were talking about preaching through the book of Acts, I hadn't even started yet. We were just discussing it. I was like, OK, but can I do Acts chapter 12? Several months ago. So I, I am excited uh, to be here today. Um, who here likes Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, the movie? Yeah, there's some people, some Kevin Costner fans. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, maybe it's the storyline. I love that movie. I really like that movie. Uh, Back when I was like in second or third grade um, my parents would go to work and I was at my house for an hour alone in the morning before I would walk to school and then I would get back to my house and I'd be home for an hour by myself before my parents got home and I watched that movie I think for like a whole year every day. Like an hour in the morning, an hour in the afternoon. I love that movie. Uh, There's a a lot that I like about that movie but I think uh, one of the things that I like the most is that uh, the storyline in general is ultimately about a, um, a good king. This is how King Richard is the king of England at the time, and he's presented as a good king uh, to, in this movie. But he's away. He's gone. He's fighting the war. And, and he's uh, left rulership to, uh, to some people, one of them being the sheriff of Nottingham. And he's not a good ruler. And it's a picture of what can happen when uh, political power uh, becomes corrupt and you have a wicked ruler exercising uh, sovereign authority over people and people begin to suffer. Um, and in steps Robin Hood, Robin of Luxley, and uh, he kind of saves the day a little bit. But at the end of the movie, spoiler alert, at the end of the movie, the good king returns. And it's like this picture that this whole time these people were being oppressed by a wicked ruler who was exercising uh, sovereign authority for his own gain. But really, the good king was the one that had true sovereign authority. And it's kind of that picture that... uh, that I love, like I even tear up during it. My kids make fun of me. I tear up all the time in the movies. But but it gives this idea of, uh, this picture of of, of being uh, trampled on, political oppression. Um, And we see that in the church. We see that in the church throughout history. We've seen that in the book of Acts. Um, And we're gonna see it again today. This persecution that happens the church being persecuted for the name of Jesus. And any time that persecution begins to happen um, in our our lives, in in the culture around us, in the world, it creates an an unsteadiness. It creates a shaky ground. It creates a situation where we begin to not know what's going to happen. And we begin to question things. Most of all, probably the question is, where's God? Why is this happening? And that's one of the questions that we're going to look at and answer today. I'm excited about Acts 12 because it's just, in a short, relatively short chapter, you see some amazing things. And Luke writes it with such, uh, such amazing writing. There's, there's a lot of uh, contrasting that's going on, a lot of irony that he uses, Um, And I hope to be able to bring some of that out. But you see a a ruler exercising his apparent sovereignty for his own self glory and his own self exaltation. And it's contrasted with God, with Jesus, who is the true king, who has true sovereign authority over everything. It's kind of the contrast that we see here. And it's also a hinged chapter. And I call it a hinge chapter because, um, you know, previously, last week, previously on Del Rio Bible Church, uh, you know, Acts uh, chapter 11, we wrapped up talking about the church in Antioch. It's a Gentile church. It was being very uh, uh, fruitful. People were coming to Christ. They were sharing um, their, uh, their finances and caring for things. So, like, it, it was just a, a really good church, right? Things were, there was a revival happening in the church of Antioch, um, but then this chapter, Luke, turns back to the, the church in Jerusalem, and things are not good. Things are not good. And it also brings up that the Jewish people are still rejecting their Messiah, Jesus. So it's not only political persecution that you see here, but it's, it's also the Jewish people that want the Christians to be stopped, that want the message of the gospel to cease. And it's a hinge because going forward in the book of Acts, from this time on, after this chapter, it is primarily focused on the Gentile church. It's as if Luke is saying, this is what's happening in Jerusalem. And things begin to shift more and more in an increasing emphasis towards bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. So that's kind of what we're looking at, uh, just a a little bit of a synopsis about uh, the chapter. But let's go ahead and dig in. Read with me uh, Acts chapter 12, verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So this Herod uh, is, is not the uh, it's not the Herod um, that um, tried Jesus. It's not the it's not the Herod that uh, was around when Jesus was born. It's this is another Herod, a different Herod, in in, in those line of, of leaders. This is Herod Agrippa the first. And it says right here he laid his uh, he laid hands on some, so he sees them, he grabbed them, right, Uh, and the intent was to mistreat them, to do them harm. He wanted to hurt them, okay, Uh, and it says that he had James, the brother of John, put to death. This is not James, the writer of the book of James, that's, that's James, Jesus's brother. This is James, the brother of John, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder. Um, James is put to death with a sword, probably beheading, This is the second martyr that we see in the early church. First Stephen and James. but This is the first apostle to be martyred. He's put to death. And it's just a cursory statement as if like just moving on. But there's a lot going on with it. And you get that from the rest of the chapter. James is put to death. Some of you may remember uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the Sons of Thunder. I like, I like that name. But uh, uh, you might recall they were walking with Jesus, and uh, um, I, when, it went, when I picture it in my mind, I picture all the disciples kind of back behind Jesus, and then James and John kind of running up to Jesus. Maybe that's not how it happened, but that's what I picture in my mind. And, and, uh, and they're like, hey, uh, when you come into glory, maybe they didn't say hey, I don't know. But when you come into glory, can, can we sit on your right and your left? We don't we don't care which one you know if you want to put James on the right or or whatever you know right and left we want to be exalted with you. We want we want some glory too, you know those are positions of honor, you know and, and Jesus uh, do you remember what Jesus says He says um, can you drink the cup that I will drink and then he tell he he tells them you will drink the cup that I'll drink and then uh, the disciples that heard. James and John, it says that the the text says they became indignant. They they were kind of mad. Like, wait a minute, why do you guys get to sit on his right and left? We want to be there too, you know? Uh, And so Jesus sees this, and he gathers all the disciples, and he says, though the rulers and authorities over the Gentiles may exercise their authority over them. Lord it over them, is what he says, right? He's talking about a negative way. Rulers and authorities... Of the Gentiles lord over their authority lord it over the people but it is not to be so with you it is not to be so with you and isn't it amazing this is why I love scripture you have the first apostle to be martyred here is James who's having a ruler exercise his own sovereignty for self-glory and self-exaltation and lording it over, James, by putting him to death. It's amazing. It's tragic. And look at what the motivation is for Herod. Look at what the motivation is. Verse 3, it says, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So he kills James, and he's like, oh, you guys really like that. I'm going to go arrest this guy and do the same thing, too. Herod was uh, part Jewish, and uh, he was friends with the Roman emperor at the time, Caligula. And uh, so he was a a Gentile ruler, but he was also kind of keeping one foot in uh, kind of the Jewish culture of the day, um, and so that's why when it says here that it was the days of unleavened bread, when he had seized him, talking about Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending that after the Passover, he'll bring him out before the people. And he'll bring him out before the people to execute him. That's, that's what it's talking about here. But he honors the Passover because he wants to please the Jews. And he, he is someone that does try to hold to some of the Jewish customs. So he's, he's not going to execute anybody during the Passover. So Peter's in prison during the Passover. But the motivation of Herod is to seek that self-exaltation, right? Oh, you guys like this? Yes, I will continue to do it. Continue to give me praise. Continue to give me honor. That's the idea here. And um, I just, I think it's so ironic. What, what, do you guys remember what Passover celebrates? Passover celebrates the uh, the deliverance of uh, God's people, the Israelites, from Pharaoh. Remember, Moses went and uh, there was the whole you know "Let my people go" thing. No, I won't. Okay, plague, 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 some more plagues, and then you know you let him go and parting of the Red Sea. You guys remember that story? That's what Passover is celebrating. Passover celebrates the deliverance of God's people from a uh, political oppression, from a persecutor, from someone that is harming God's people. That's what Passover is celebrating. They're celebrating God's deliverance. And it's ironic that while they're celebrating, while these Jewish people are celebrating God's deliverance, they have the herald speaking of the gospel of Jesus Christ being held in prison true deliverance from Jesus Christ was offered to them, and they're holding Peter in prison while they celebrate. It's ironic, and it's sad. But it says uh, that he was delivered over to squads of soldiers, and then it says, uh, so Peter was kept in prison, but, I love that word in Scripture, when things look bleak, And all of a sudden you see the word but, it's like, oh man, this is good. Uh, So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. Oh yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Anytime you see like but prayer or uh, but God did this, oh, it's exciting. Because you know that something big is about to happen. It says, on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. So, four squads of soldiers were assigned to watch Peter. Each squad had four soldiers, okay? And they would do, like, shift work, watching him around the clock. Um, and, And the way that they watched him is he was literally chained in the arms to soldiers right between him, right? He was in between soldiers, one soldier on his right, one soldier on his left chained to his arms, and then two soldiers on the outside of his cell as like sentries. I think Herod was worried that Peter was going to go somewhere, you know, but that, that's how he was being kept. And behold, verse 7, and behold, this is the Greek word idu, uh, some of your translations may say look, some of your translations may not translate it at all, it, it, it might just move on. I, I tend to be an old school guy, so I like behold, you know, but the idea here is look, Pay attention. Don't miss this. uh, If this was a movie, it's where the director would be like, okay, start zooming in real tight, you know? Um, You don't miss this. This is big. Something big is about to happen. Behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Isn't that amazing? We know Jesus breaks every chain, but, like, he's just, get up, stands up, chains fall. Pretty good trick. This is divine intervention, divine deliverance, saving Peter. It's clear. It does, it, it's not saying, oh, you know, the angel brought bolt, bolt cutters, and right? He just stood up and the chains fell, people. That is amazing. That is absolutely amazing. What I think is funny, though, is he's sleeping. And the angel has to wake him up. This is the night before he's about to be executed, and he is sleeping. I don't know if I would be sleeping between two soldiers. Maybe it was comfortable. I don't know. But he's sleeping. And the text doesn't tell us why he's sleeping. Maybe he was exhausted. Maybe he he was just exhausted from from the process, right, Uh, of everything. Maybe his faith had finally reached a point where he was uh, confident in who God was, and he was just resting, that God was in control. Uh, when I, as I was preparing, I was reading this, and I saw that Peter was sleeping, I thought of the, uh, uh, the time when uh, Jesus and the disciples were in the boat, remember, the cross in the Sea of Galilee, and the wind and the waves are going all crazy, and, uh, and what's Jesus doing? Sleeping. He's sleeping in the boat and the disciples are like, wake up, we're going to die, you know, and and Jesus rebukes them and then he rebukes the wind and the waves. Maybe, Maybe Peter's sleeping because he remembers that and he thinks, wow, if Jesus can sleep through a moment when I thought I was about to die because we were about to be capsized, Maybe he really does have this controlled. Maybe that's why he was sleeping. I don't know. But that's what I thought. It's pretty amazing. And look at, look at what the angel says. Get up quickly. His chains fell off, and then the angel said to him, gird yourself and put on your sandals. Gird yourself. Okay, I am an old school guy. I like the hold. Gird yourself. I probably wouldn't have done, but that's okay. Okay. Um, uh, and he did so, and he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And in the, in, in the way the text is written here, it's actually like, continue to follow me. Keep following me, okay? So angel says, get up, get dressed, right? Chains fall off, he gets dressed. Um, and, and it's verse nine, it says, he went out and continued to follow, and he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. I thought he was seeing a vision i don't know if he was sleepwalking i i tend to think well he's seen miracles he has performed miracles he has also had visions so he's probably like i don't know what's happening right now but i'm going to follow maybe i don't know um But look at verse 10. It says, when they passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. Which opened for them by itself. And and the place that we think uh, Peter was probably being held, there are multiple gates, okay? We only see the iron gate here opening by itself. But I venture to say he probably made it through the other gates too. And how does he get past the guards? Was he invisible? Were they sleeping? We don't know. But it's clear that it is God that is doing this. And when God wants to do something, he's going to do it. He's going to do it. He will break every chain. He will lift every gate. And it's going to get done. And I think that's so comforting to remember. So the gate opens by itself, and it says, and they went out... uh, and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. So he gets out into the city, and boom, the angel's gone. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the land, from the hand of Herod, and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So we see here, uh, again, a nod to the Jewish people, that it wasn't just uh, a political leader that was uh, trying to persecute the church, but the, the Jewish people were behind it. Also, they wanted him to be executed. Uh, and when he realized this, when he realized that, that he was actually set free, he was no longer in the vision, he goes to the house of Mary, the mother of Mark, or sorry, the mother of John, who was also called Mark. So, John, Mark, uh, probably who we think wrote the book of Mark, um, where many were gathered together and were praying. They were still praying. It's a continual, fervent prayer. And when he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda, or Rose, that means Rose, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. You can't, like, that doesn't get made up. You know what I mean? The story's not made up. Like, you would have a servant girl, and they would be like, she was so overjoyed that she didn't let him in and instead ran to tell people. No, this is like a true story, because this is, this is the kind of story that you would like tell your friends when there was this amazing thing that happened, and you would not believe what Danny did. He, he just completely ignored what was actually happening and was like overjoyed, right? That, that's, that's the idea here. She's so overjoyed. She leaves him at the gate to run and tell people. I love it. It's amazing. And look at what happens. Um, uh, It says, uh, they said to her, you are out of your mind. You are out of your mind. This word here, this Greek word is used two other times in the New Testament. And and it means like insane or going mad. That's literally like, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, no, it's his angel. It's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. So uh, there have been entire theologies about angels that uh, use this verse and a, and a few other verses to develop this idea that um, uh, that there is such a thing as guardian angels, and that, um, and that they might even look like you. Like, your personal guardian angel kind of looks like you, potentially. And, and so, that's what some people have said, that, oh, it just looked like Peter. That's what they were thinking. We don't know that from the text. We do know that at this time, there was uh, there was Jewish teaching that, uh, that there were guardian angels and, and uh, there were personal angels and things like that. Now, I think that there could be. Don't get me wrong. Uh, uh, what I'm saying, though, is we can't, we can't take from the text and, and get all the way there through illogical steps. You see what I'm saying? Like, we have to make some pretty big uh, jumps. I like to call them hermeneutical gymnastics okay? Like, you got to make some weird moves to, to get there. Um, so I'm not saying that's not possible. I'm just saying, like, you need to be careful when you're reading things and, you, and you're digging into theology and you get something that's a little weird going too far down that trail without first verifying it with the text, okay? Um, but that's all I'll say about that. Okay, uh, we'll go back to the text. So uh, they said, her, well, you're out of your mind, uh, and, uh, but he, he continued knocking at the door. And so they saw him and were amazed, it says. They saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them, so they let him in, right? Motioning to them with his hand to be silent. So they were amazed. They were probably like, oh, it's Peter, right? Uh, Who knows? But uh, he's like, shh, shh, shh. I just got out of prison. Be quiet, you know? So he tells them all to be silent. And he draws them to him. And he tells them all about how the Lord let him out of prison. And he says, report these things to James, and the brethren. Now, this James is James, the brother of Jesus, the half brother of Jesus, who would eventually uh, take over the Jerusalem church and write the book of James, right? So, uh, so this this prayer gathering is happening at Mary's house, the mother of John Mark. But there's other places in Jerusalem where the church is clearly gathered, right? Because he tells them to go to James uh, and the brethren. So uh, it's interesting. Uh, And then the verse says, uh, then he left and went to another place. And here's the interesting thing. We don't really know where Peter went. Um, There's a lot of people that think we know where Peter went, but we don't know. It it doesn't say, it's never really uh, laid out in detail. Um, But he probably left Judea, okay? Um, And he went to another place is all it says. As I was preparing about this, I started. Uh, I started thinking about you. Just you see this wicked ruler exercising sovereignty for his own gain. Um, but we know God is sovereign, and we know that He's in control over everything. And it it, it brings up the question: Well, where was God when James was killed? You can't tell me that the jerusalem church wasn't praying fervently for james of course they were so why why does god show up and deliver peter but he doesn't deliver james we're never told why but one thing we know for sure is that god is sovereign and he's in control If he had the power to do all of that for Peter, he certainly had the power to do all of that for James. But he didn't. And we don't know why. But we do see that that sometimes suffering happens in this world. Sometimes persecution happens. And yes, it can be persecution even to death. And that doesn't mean that we don't pray for deliverance for people that are suffering or, or experiencing persecution. But it should mean that we understand that in God's sovereign plan, it doesn't always come to a physical rescue. It doesn't always. Are you guys? Um, how many people here are familiar with the the missionaries uh, that that went to Ecuador? The five missionaries, like Jim Elliot, and okay. So some of you, some of you are there. there were, uh, in 1956. There were five missionaries that went to evangelize a, a group, a, a, a tribe in in Ecuador, and. Um, all five missionaries were killed by this tribe. It was a very hostile tribe. Uh, all five of them were speared to death. And um, Steve Saint uh, is the son of Nate Saint, who was one of the missionaries that was there. Uh, he later built an airstrip um, to this area through Mission Aviation Fellowship, actually. And, uh, and he learned some more details about what was, uh, what was going on. And one of the things that he learned was that uh, the people the missionaries actually had they had firearms with them but that they had um, they had decided that they were not going to fire on the tribe's people when they went uh, and they made this decision because other people had and they they felt like they were being called not to i don't know exactly how that worked out but uh, they did not fire they could have defended themselves. But they didn't shoot at these tribespeople. And, and um, we found out later that this was one of the things uh, that was instrumental to these tribespeople coming to faith in Christ. The people were obedient to what they felt like they were called to do. And it wasn't to defend themselves. And that's one of the things that God used to bring these people to Christ. It's amazing. But where is God in the suffering? These missionaries died. And there became a, a huge uproar at the time about missions work, and should we even be evangelizing, you know, tribes, people that are hostile, and, uh, and all this. And you, so you had camps where people were like, no, we shouldn't be doing this. We shouldn't send people to these hostile, you know, places. And then you had other people that are like, no, the gospel is for everyone. It is the power to save. We have to go to these places, you know? Um, and it was kind of a big, big deal. But, but we, still, we still are left with the question, where's God in that? If God is sovereign, why did they die? Why did they die? We know a little bit now that, that, that their, their death and the way that it happened was used uh, as part of their, the, the conversion of these tribes people. but we don't always know why physical pain and suffering happens. Uh, another missionary, uh, John uh, Patton, um, he's a missionary in the, uh, some islands that were in the South Pacific, and uh, he was you know, ministering to, again, uh, people that were, that were hostile to the gospel, tri- tribespeople, and um, it was him and his wife in this house, and the tribespeople all came to this house. They were, they were going to burn it and kill him and his wife. And so he and his wife began to pray. And and he he writes that they prayed all night. And as the sun started to come up and light started to come out, they were surprised to see their attackers leave. Their attackers left. It it seemed that God had delivered them. It's amazing. And a year later, uh, the chief of this tribe actually converted to Christianity. And John Patton was able to talk with the chief and uh, he says, um, why, why did you not burn the house? Why didn't you kill us? And the chief uh, recounts uh, to John, he says, who were all those men that were with you? And, uh, and he says, it was just me and my wife. And this is what the chief said. Uh, the chief said uh, that they had seen hundreds of big men in shining garments with drawn swords. God saves people. God saves people. That's amazing. But here's the thing. John Patton didn't always experience God's provision in this way. When he first became a missionary, uh, when he was a pretty young missionary, his wife passed away while he was in the mission field because of complications due to childbearing. And then just days later, the child passed away. And he was all alone. He was all alone. And this is what he wrote about um, that experience. Um, He had to dig the graves for them, and he writes about uh, that time, and he says, I was never altogether forsaken. The ever-merciful God sustained me to lay the precious dust of my loved ones in the same quiet grave but for Jesus and the fellowship that that he granted me there, I would have gone mad and died beside that lonely grave. Jesus was there. Jesus was there during that hard time for him. And he gave sufficient grace, grace enough for him to stay and continue working among those people and bring many of them to saving faith in Christ. Jesus is there even when it doesn't look like physical deliverance is happening or will happen, he's there. Because God is sovereign and God is in control. Even when there is a wicked ruler like Herod trying to exercise his own authority, trying to be sovereign and gain his own glory. That's a word of caution. That when um, wicked people seek to please other people more than pleasing God, terrible things can happen. Terrible, terrible things can happen. Um, Sometimes angels are there. Sometimes angels are there. Um, Steve Saint uh, later found out that one of the other things that led a lot of the tribespeople in Ecuador to Christ was that as those missionaries were being killed, the tribes' people actually said they saw a multitude of angels in the sky singing. So God is there whether physical deliverance happens or not. God is there um, when we begin to uh, when we begin to wrestle with some of the difficulties of this world, we should look at our prayer life. We see here that, that the church was gathered together as a body of believers in fervent, continual prayer. Passionate prayer. And, and honestly, I, I wouldn't say that my prayer life is super passionate all the time. It's really not. But I was kind of convicted by this, and I started thinking, Why? Why? Why when I see the struggles of the world is sometimes my prayer passionate, fervent? And why is it not other times? And I think the answer is perspective. Um, When I think about what God is doing in this world, the missio day, the mission of God, when I have that in my mind, when I hold that closely, my prayers become more passionate because I because I see what God is doing in the world and I'm engaged with it. Um, when I'm not thinking that way, I see short-sighted. I think about what matters most to me, and I start to fall back into uh, some of the, those terrible habits of caring more about myself than the people around me and what's going on in the world. So I think we need to connect with God's mission a little bit more, and it will help us grow as a body of believers, having more fervent passionate prayer um, re, the, the thing that that helps me is when I read about martyrs read about the martyrs read about missionaries that are uh, that have been at work and are at work now stop by our, our missions board on the wall up there read some of the letters make a commitment like with you and your family to uh, to grab one of those letters, or, or we have the missionary profile in your bulletin. Look at who the missionary is. Read it. Write it down. Pray for them. Engage with the mission of God a little bit, and I think that will help give us perspective. Um, okay, uh, let's continue. Uh, verse 18, uh, it says, now when day came, uh, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what uh, could become of Peter. <laughs> no small disturbance. No kidding. The guy that you were chained to is gone, right? That would create a big disturbance. And, of course, uh, these guards, if you lose your prisoner, what's going to happen? They're going to get executed, right? Yeah, I'd say there was probably no small disturbance. Thank you, Luke. Uh, That was awesomely worded. Uh, Verse 19, when Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered them to be led away to execution. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea, and was spending time there, all right, so uh, we don't know why he went to Caesarea, maybe he was trying to save face, and he just wanted to kind of, he's like, well, I executed James, that went well, that pleased the Jewish people, I was going to execute Peter, I can't do it, Uh, maybe maybe he was avoiding some of the the people, we don't know, but he went to Caesarea, and then it says, uh, now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and uh, with one accord they came to him, and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country uh, was fed by the king's country. Uh, so what's going on is uh, you have Tyre and Sidon; they're, they're two coastal cities, um, and uh, they're primarily all of their food and resources primarily come from the in, inland regions, right? Uh, which King Herod is over, right? So he's upset with them, and they get the ear of kind of his number two in command, somebody you know high up and and. Uh, they're able to smooth things over, right? And so he's, he's invited the people. He's going to address them, right? Uh, and then it says, um, on, on an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, remember, he's a king. He's going to exercise some sovereignty on these people. Having put on his royal apparel, he took a seat on his rostrum, on a throne, and he began delivering an address to them. We don't know what was said, But look at the people's response. The people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. The voice of a God and not a man. They were attributing divinity to him. And then verse 23, and immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and died. The Bible is true. This really happened This isn't some made-up story for for people to just learn from. Yes, we can learn from it, but this really happened. How do we know it really happened? This is recorded in historical writings of the day. It's not only in the Bible. Josephus, the the Jewish historian, uh, he was a Roman Jewish historian, and um, he he actually recorded this. And his recording says that uh, Herod put on uh, silver garments that shined in the sun so that he looked like God. And he addressed the people, and uh, in his recording, the way the people ascribed divinity to him is, uh, they said, uh, you are not a mere mortal. You are not a mere mortal. And Josephus also records that he did nothing to like, dissuade people from saying that, from giving him glory of God. And he says, because of that, he died. This is just, this is a historian trying to record history. This really happened. This really happened. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. God is in control and God is sovereign. Even when someone who is wicked decides to harm God's people, God is still in control. And that is the message of this chapter, which is one of the reasons I love it. It's so tightly compact. It's right there, all of the contrasts. You have a a man who is a mere mortal, trying to exercise authority as a sovereign ruler, gain self-exaltation and self-glory, contrasted with the God of the universe. With the true king. And he says, you may, think you, you may think you won. You may think you got a point when you killed James. But really, you still got zero points. I only allowed that to happen. And then I delivered Peter. And now I'm going to show everyone who's really in charge. And I'm going to take your life. This is what happens when wicked people choose to uh, be people-pleasers instead of God-pleasers. They can get led astray. They can start to do some terrible things. But God is in control. God is in control. And then look at verse 24. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. God wins. The gospel continues to go out. The church continues to grow. Despite Herod's best efforts to squash it, God wins. And for that, I am so grateful that God wins. Because we wouldn't have faith in Christ if it wasn't for God's sovereignty in continuing to let the gospel go out. Uh, You know, uh, as I was uh, preparing this and everything, I thought a lot about what was happening um in afghanistan and uh particularly for the believers that are there and several pastors uh there's kind of there's like a pastoral network uh you know uh, of pastors in that area and uh, several pastors uh that were uh, that could not get out of the country as it became more and more unstable that were that were still there uh and still are there um Began writing uh, messages to some of the pastors in that network, and, and uh, uh, at least one of them posted some stuff um, online uh, from from the UAE. And uh, he said he kind of categorized what so many of the messages were about, and kind of summarized them, a lot of them, and included a lot of uh, excerpts uh, from them. But they p- prayed for three primary things. This is this is what they prayed for in the midst of hostile persecution. And probably being put to death. This is this is what they prayed for. Now, maybe this is what the church was praying for then too. This is what they prayed for: physical protection and provision. They asked for physical deliverance to be protected. Um, they also asked for provision. Um, one pastor said, "Not only not only am I in threat of being put to death, but my family is too, uh, just because of who I am and you know as a leader of a." of a church in afghanistan um so they prayed for physical protection several of them said you know we're, we're running out of money we're running out of food we can't you can't just go to the atm and get money you know like we can't we have to stay in our houses because if we go out like it we're probably going to be put to death you know so they were asking for prayer for that uh, they prayed for uh, spiritual provision that they would stay strong in the Lord. And one pastor said this, uh, pray that we would be strong in the Lord who is the sovereign king. They knew that the apparent rulers of that country were coming for them, but they also knew that God was still sovereign. And they wanted spiritual provision. They wanted to be strengthened in their faith so that if they were being led out to their execution, that they wouldn't deny their faith that they would be able to stand with Jesus. What an amazing prayer. The third thing that they prayed for was that the gospel would continue to advance. They prayed for revival. Several of them uh, asked for prayer that even though uh, they were being hunted, that the people that so strongly opposed them might come to know Christ. That is powerful prayer. Too many times, I think, uh, in our own lives, we kind of stop at the physical protection part. We want the suffering to end. We want the pain to end. We want things to be good. we We want everything to be okay. And that's good. We should pray for that. But a lot of times, God is doing something else. So we need to pray for spiritual provision we need to pray even for the people that are persecuting we need to pray that the word of the lord continues to go out as it tells us that it did here in verse 24 and then i love this one pastor uh wrote and said our hope is not in politics but in jesus our hope is not in politics but in jesus i I hope that is true of us. I hope that is true of us. Some of you may be called to a place where you're gonna experience persecution. Some of you may be called to minister to people right here in Del Rio and experience persecution because of it. I don't, I don't know. But I hope that that you will answer that call. That you will not shirk away from that responsibility. That you will go to the Lord in prayer. That you will seek a community to, to pray fervently for you. And ultimately that you will rest upon the knowledge that God is sovereign and in control. Whether you're chained between two guards or not, you can rest. God is in control. Amen? Amen. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for your, uh, for your protection and your provision. We thank you for passages like this that in, in such, a, such a short passage, we see that, uh, that you are in control even when persecution leads to death. You are in control whether there is physical deliverance or not. You are in control father would you strengthen our faith would you help us to be people that would um, encourage people to lean into your authority to recognize you as the sovereign ruler of everything to not take the easy way out and explain away pain and suffering as uh, well the people praying for it just didn't have enough faith it's not it's not like that it's not that simple don't let us take the easy way out, God, but help us to hold this intention. Help us to understand that you are in control even when it doesn't seem like it. Help us to find comfort in that and peace and rest. Help us to grow as a body of believers that would continue to grow in, in fervent prayer, passionate prayer, that we would uh, look at the missionaries that are doing your work, that are spreading the gospel, and we would pray for them. That we would be excited about sharing your word with others. Oh, God, help us to be a church that is like that. We thank you that you are in control, God.